One of the greatest tragedies in this age of confusion and apostasy has been the attempted destruction of the holy sacrifice of the Mass and belief in the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And in great measure, this has been accomplished. For the majority of the world, the true Mass, and therefore the Blessed Sacrament, has been almost completely wiped out and forgotten. But by the great grace and mercy of God, we traditional Catholics, the faithful remnant of a remnant, still have the true holy sacrifice of the Mass. And no religious duty or act of devotion of we Catholics should be more important to us than that of the Mass, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. However, in religion, there is always the danger of falling into formalism, of merely going through an external routine, of going through the motions, of And to imagine that this is all that is required of us. One can be physically present at Mass and be mentally and spiritually a million miles away. And there is the danger of our religious duties, of them being based more on sentimentalism than really deep faith. Our religious observance must be based on more than mere feeling, mere likes and dislikes, of mere accidentals and the frills of the ceremonial. We must strive to form our life of devotion and the service of God upon solid dogmatic doctrine, on the faith. As Cardinal Manning, a 19th century English cardinal, said, devotion not founded on dogma is questionable devotion. End quote. And it is very possible for us to come to Mass and go through the motions and not really understand what is really taking place at Mass or to understand our own part in the Mass. And since this knowledge is so vital to us, to a full Catholic life, and that is what I want to talk about in this second talk, in order to understand the Mass, let us go back to where it all began, the Last Supper. As... He sat at table at the Last Supper. Our Lord knew that before the sun would set the following day, he would be a mangled corpse hanging upon the cross. And that between this moment at table and to his last moment on the cross, his last breath, he was to endure unutterable suffering, both mental and physical, out of love for his Father and love for us, for us sinners. And his sacrificial death was the price of our redemption and would be the supreme proof of his love for us. But his love wasn't satisfied with that. Scripture says, Jesus, knowing that his hour was come, that he should pass out of this world to his Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Unto the end. He couldn't go any further. He said to them with desire, I have desired to eat this past with you before I suffer. He eagerly desired to give us the supreme expression of his love, not in words only, but in such a way that would be worthy of the very omnipotence of God. The moment had arrived in which he would accomplish a wonder surpassing the creation of the world, of the entire universe. 
He took bread and blessed it, broke it into pieces, and then spoke those words, words which effect what they signify. Take ye and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And the sound, as the sound of his words died away, one substance, that of bread, became another, the body of Jesus Christ, united with his soul and divinity. Similarly, he took the chalice and said, This is my blood of the New Testament, which shall be shed for many unto the remission of sins. And instantly, where there had been wine, there was now his precious blood. The very same blood that would flow so copiously from his wounds only a few hours later. He who had turned water into wine had now turned wine into blood. Our Lord was holding his very self in his own hands. Himself sacramentally hidden beneath the form of bread and wine. Our Lord created a whole new mode of existence, of real presence, a way that would make it possible for him to be literally the nourishment of our souls. How could he give more than that? How could he give more than himself? And the apostles then each received their first communion with childlike faith and simplicity, and they knew that what they had received was no ordinary food. It wasn't ordinary, but the very body and blood of Christ, for he had promised again and again, the bread which I give is my flesh for the life of the world. Then Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood abideth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me the same also shall live by me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. And they had long known that the one who spoke those words could neither deceive nor be deceived. He was the one in whom they could absolutely trust. The impossible was true. They lived, no, not they, but Jesus Christ, their beloved Lord and Savior, lived in them. Love had finally achieved its consummation. Because love instinctively seeks union. The more ardent the love, the closer the union. And the love of the sacred heart reached the uttermost bounds of possibility when he clothed himself, his own body and blood, under the Eucharistic veils, the appearance of bread and wine. But this was not enough. There is no communion or union with God without sacrifice, before sacrifice. If our Lord was present as spiritual food for our souls, it was because he was a victim first, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. So at the Last Supper, our Lord offered himself, his death on the morrow, his blood and his body as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. But once was not enough for his love. He desired his apostles to reenact repeat, renew, and reoffer his sacrificial death 
so as to apply it and apply its fruits throughout the centuries until the end of time. And he would surrender himself a prisoner into their hands and in the hands of their appointed successors to perpetuate his presence among men. This was the clean oblation that was spoken of by the prophet Malachi. For from the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles, and in every place there is sacrifice, and there is offered to my name a clean oblation. For my name is great among the Gentiles, said the Lord of hosts. In the silence of adoration, in prayer, following communion, he spoke again. Do this for a commemoration of me. Not just remember me. Not just tell a narrative, a pious story, a mere memory, but do this. It's a sacred action. Offer the same sacrifice as I have done. The Last Supper was the first Mass, but it looked forward to the cross. And every Mass since Good Friday has looked back to Calvary. And at once those simple men had in their hands the awesome power of the priesthood. Priests who have been properly ordained have the power to consecrate bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ. And henceforth, his own flesh would be the spiritual nourishment for the souls of God's children during the time of their earthly sojourn, their earthly exile. And our holy faith teaches us, and thus to be Catholic we are bound to believe that at Mass... After the priest has consecrated the host, it is no longer bread, but Jesus Christ himself. And by virtue of the words of consecration, the bread is transformed, changed, transubstantiated into the body of Christ. And similarly, by virtue of the sacred words of consecration for the wine, the wine is changed into the blood of Christ. And of the bread and wine, only the accidents remain. The outward appearance, the shape, the smell, the taste, those remain. But inwardly, their very substance changes. They're miraculously changed into Christ. But we must not think that in the host, only his body is present. Or in the chalice, only his blood. For Christ is not dead, but alive and one. And wherever his body is, or his blood is, he is their whole and entire body, blood, soul, and divinity. And wherever either of these consecrated elements are placed, their Christ really is, truly. And this is the reason why communion under one form is sufficient. The host is the whole Christ. But the Mass does not consist in the consecration of bread alone. And there's a deep reason for the dual consecration of the bread and wine. The separate consecration of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ signify a mystical separation of his most precious blood from his sacred body, a mystical death. You have the host, pure white, almost drained of all blood and broken, as it were, signifying his suffering. Calvary was a sacrifice which took place at a moment in history but it's now become timeless. It transcends time and place. The holy sacrifice of the Mass is the sacrifice of Calvary. They're one and the same, not two different sacrifices. The only difference between 
The sacrifice of Calvary and the sacrifice of the Mass is in the manner of the offering. Calvary was the bloody sacrifice, the actual suffering and death of Christ, an external sacrifice which was a sign of Christ's interior obedience to God and his love of his Father. And the Mass is the unbloody reenactment of Calvary without the actual suffering and death. But it carries all the same value. Because the Mass is not just the image of Christ, but Christ himself as immolated, as sacrificed, as a victim in the host and chalice. The Mass then is truly a sacrifice. It is the real yet unbloody reenactment of the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Most of this I know is review. We have to get it sunk into our minds and hearts. And although this re-offering and this representation of Christ's sacrifice is most real and efficacious, it is, it is only a mystical death. As I said in the previous talk, Christ is now and forever gloriously risen from the dead, incapable of suffering and death. And these fundamental truths lead us to many practical points for our spiritual life, but one particular, namely that the Blessed Sacrament is not just a holy thing, dead and inactive, but a divine person. The gloriously risen Christ is present in this room. He's living, he's conscious, and fully aware of what we are doing and thinking. So the Blessed Sacrament does not somehow symbolically represent Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ himself. It's the living bread who has come down from heaven. And just as the Blessed Sacrament is Jesus Christ clothed in the appearance of bread and wine, the Mass is the sacrifice of Calvary, and I'll explain this a little bit more. We Catholics, generally speaking, understand and accept all these truths. But I think the Mass is not always understood by us fully what it is. The Mass is the sacrifice of Christ clothed under this ritual, this ceremony, this dual consecration. According to St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, the Mass is the perfect sacrament of our Lord's Passion. The perfect sacrament of our Lord's Passion. What does that mean? That's to say that it's related to the sacrifice of Calvary in somewhat the same way as the consecrated species are related to the body and blood of Christ. So just as the Blessed Sacrament brings Christ to us here and now, he's truly there. So the Mass gives us the sacrifice of Calvary. It gives it a new location in space and time. The Mass is Calvary in sacramental form. And the sacrifice of the priest offers to God each morning is the sacrifice which Christ offered on Calvary. It's one and the same. It's being present at the foot of the cross. It's taking that cross and uplifting it from Jerusalem and putting it here in Wheat Ridge. The sacrament of our Lord's passion. In both Calvary and the Mass, one and the same person is priest and victim. And I want to quote the Council of Trent. It says, quote, It is one and the same priest who offers himself now through the ministerial offices of him who has received sacerdotal ordination. 
The priest of the sacrifice of the Christian altar is none other than Christ himself, who is invisible. But the sacrifice of the Christian altar but functions visibly through the actions of a validly ordained priest. His acting is representative of Christ and not merely a legal formality. It is a mysterious reality. The ordained, ordained priest represents Christ in a way that surpasses all modes of representation known to human experience. An ambassador armed with plenipotentiary powers represents his government and can act in his name. This is an arrangement of the moral and legal order. The manner in which Christ's ordained minister represents Christ is far superior. It is a reality of, of the physical order. The sacerdotal character which empowers the priest to speak and to act in the name of Christ is something real communicated to the soul. This is so true that he who has this character becomes ministerially Christ himself. The rite of ordination assimilates him to the sovereign priest and confers on him the power to hold that high priest place and the sacrifice of the altar. This is the reason why the priest, consecrated in the per consecrating in the person of the Savior, pronounces the words of consecration in the first person. He does not say, this is the body of Christ, but this is my body. Unquote. So the priest is at the Mass as Jesus was on Calvary. He functions to bring God to men and to raise men to God. He consecrates and he sacrifices, but it is as the visible representative of Christ. It is really Christ who consecrates through him. It is really Christ who sacrificed through the priests. The intrinsic value of the Mass is from Christ. The priest is just his representative. And so it really doesn't depend on the personal moral quality of the priest. The priest can be a sinner. It is Christ who sacrificed through him as an instrument. But that should not blind us to the fact that in order to personally benefit from the Mass, the priest must offer up the sacrifice as his own sacrifice. He must mean what he says in the Mass. The priest has to make our Lord's interior disposition his own. He has to make those dispositions permeate his whole life. He has to strive to make his interior sacrifice correspond with the exterior sacrifice, sacramentally renewed in the Mass. But everything that I have just said in this talk may be review. But my next point is probably not so well known. And it is this, the Mass is not only the priest's Mass, it is yours as well. The Mass is not only the priest's Mass, it is yours as well. The people attending Mass are not supposed to be mere spectators, but intimately united with the sacrifice. All of us must make this sacrifice our very own. And this is why during the Mass the priest turns towards you, the people, and says, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Father Almighty. My sacrifice and yours. So, <clears throat> so everything that I've just said about the priest making his, our Lord's disposition, interior disposition, his own, applies to each 
one of you. Why? Why is that? This may sound a little shocking. It's because you share in Christ's priesthood as well. And that may sound shocking. But that is because it is little known truth of our faith and that we really hear about. It has been misunderstood by some. But this is traditional Catholic doctrine. By baptism, each Christian has a degree of participation in the priesthood of Christ. Confirmation increases this union, and ordination makes a man an alter Christus, a priest capable of absolving sin and the person of Christ and of offering the holy sacrifice of the Mass and by consecrating the Blessed Sacrament. And this doesn't mean that everyone can consecrate the Blessed Sacrament. But what it does mean is this, is that you are members of the mystical body of Christ. And in a deeply mystical way, as a member of Christ, you share in the sacrifice of our head, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that when he offered himself to his Father on the cross, he offered us as well. We're part of him. When the Father sees our Lord on the cross, he sees us also. For we're united with our Lord. And in the Mass, therefore, in this representation of the sacrifice of Calvary, each of us, in turn, must offer Christ to the Father and offer yourselves with Christ. That is the heart of the Mass. You are not mere spectators. And let me give you some quotes to back up this important doctrine. First of all, St. Peter, in his epistle, writes, Be you also as living stones built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen generation, a kingly priesthood, a holy nation, a purchased people, that you may declare his virtues who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Chosen generation, a kingly priesthood. You're part of that. St. Ambrose says more explicitly, he says, all the children of the church are priests, that at baptism they receive the unction which makes them participate in the priesthood. The host which they offer to God is wholly spiritual. It is themselves. St. Augustine says, all Christians are priests because they are members of the one priest, Jesus Christ. Pope St. Leo the Great said, by our baptism, the royal and sacerdotal dignity is communicated to us all. Rejoice in this elevation as an honor which you share with all the body of the church. And Pope Pius XI, I believe in the 1930s, I don't remember the exact year, in his encyclical Miserentissimus Redemptor, he writes, the entire Christian people, chosen race, royal priesthood, should participate in the burdens of the mystical priesthood in a sacrament in the satisfaction and sacrifice. And elsewhere he continues, in the very august Eucharistic sacrifice, the priest and the rest of the faithful must join their immolation in such a way that they offer themselves also as living hosts, holy and agreeable to God. Elect race, royal priesthood, the faithful must concur in this oblation in almost the same manner as the priest. Almost the same manner as the priest. Words of Pope Pius XI. So what does this all mean? It means that 
faithful must actually spiritually participate in the Mass by making a real offering of the Mass. And this is something that we Catholics must understand and appreciate, but I'm afraid not many do. You're not meant to merely hear Mass, to merely attend Mass, merely be present, but to offer Christ and yourself at Mass. We wonder why we don't get more spiritual benefit from attending Mass. It is because we're simply present. We're simply watching, just listening, just distracted maybe, just waiting for it to to be over with so we can go get some coffee and donuts. Just going through the motions. Perhaps we're bored. Perhaps interested, edified, but distant, still remote, still uninvested in the Mass. If you want to profit from the Mass, you have to invest yourself. We have mediocre Catholics because their Mass is mediocre. I'm not saying all of you are mediocre, but that is the cause. St. Cyprian says this, If our oblation and our sacrifice do not correspond with the passion of Christ, the sacrifice of the Lord is not celebrated with the required holiness. Unquote. So we must strive to make the Mass our life, and our life a Mass, to bring the ordinary of the Mass into the ordinary of our life, and then the ordinary of our life back into the ordinary of the Mass. We must strive to form within ourselves, within our hearts, during Mass especially, Christ's disposition of complete love of the Father, complete obedience to God, complete and perfect and utter abandonment to divine providence and trust. And to live out that disposition, that sacrificial disposition in the ordinary everyday lives. And then when we come back to Mass, we have to bring our ordinary everyday trials and hardships and temptations and heartaches and crosses, everything that weighs upon your heart. Bring it back And this includes all your joys and hopes as well. But offer all that to God as part of your sacrifice, as part of Christ's sacrifice. Our life has to overflow into the Mass and then the Mass to overflow into our life. We must put ourselves on that pattern with the host and offer ourselves with Christ. Put ourselves in that chalice, all the sufferings and heartaches of our life. That's how we sanctify our daily life, with the daily Mass. It's our daily bread. That's how we really benefit from the Mass. St. Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing unto God, your reasonable service. Your reasonable service. Not just sentimental, reasonable So what could be more greater or more important for us than to take part in the Holy Mass, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass? What private devotion could ever take the place of participating in Holy Mass? The Mass is not just a memorial of a past event, not just a community meal, a get-together for fellowship's sake, not just something we do on Sundays. Our Mass is the supreme act of worship, adoration, and thanksgiving and petition to God. It's the holiest thing that you could ever do in this life. It's the best use of your time. 
It is everything. It's our holy religion all rolled up into one act. And we need to start getting back into essentials to really understand what our religion means at its heart and core. We have to be able to distinguish between essentials and accidentals. Because one day, we quite possibly will have to attend Mass in the woods, on a tree stump, or in a cave, or in a concentration camp. Will it mean the same to us without all the externals and frills? Without the buildings? Without the vestments? It has to mean the same. It has to even mean more. And it will mean if we understand what really happening at Mass. We have to avoid formalism like the plague. So do not come to Mass out of mere routine just because we have to do it on Sunday. Because something you have to do. Be intelligent about your piety. Strive to, for a, a deep theological devotion and not merely a sentimental piety based on feelings. I enjoy Mass. That's great. That's not the point. It's a sacrifice. It's not entertainment. Supreme prayer. Some people have even said they prefer benediction to Mass. That's not understanding the Mass. We have to be Mass conscious. And so those who desire to be truly spiritual and Christ-like will spare no effort to be able to attend Mass. And not only that, but to attend in such a way as to draw the greatest possible graces from it. So what is the best method of attending Mass? There are many, many ways and methods of assisting at Mass and also of making our thanksgiving after Holy Communion. <clears throat> but the principle that we should always keep in mind is that we should use that which truly helps us personally to raise our minds and hearts to God, to form that disposition, that Christ-like disposition, and not to be afraid or feel guilty about dropping what simply doesn't help us at the time. St. Francis de Sales said about meditation, I guess it could be applied to everything we do, sometimes the best method is to have no method and not to be straight-jacketed in. But it is indeed often said, don't pray at Mass, but pray the Mass. But we must not take this recommendation either to mean that we must slavishly follow the text of the Missal. The Missal is excellent, and probably the, the best means to form those proper dispositions in our heart. But sometimes there are those people who have become so dependent on the Missal that they could not intelligently attend Mass with devotion and attention without one. We have to use it. But one day you may not have access to it. So try to form that habit of attending Mass in that disposition. So praying the Mass implies making the inner dispositions of Christ our own. His disposition of adoration and love and complete abandonment to God. So any method that helps you form those dispositions in your heart will be a good method for you at that time and stage in your spiritual life. And this includes the Missal and the Holy Rosary. Sometimes a spiritual reading book sometimes can raise our minds to heart as long as it's not totally on a different topic. 
and sometimes just silent adoration and contemplation in the presence of this sacrifice. I wanted to point out, if you're a child and your parents want you to use a missile, then use the missile as a sign of your Christ-like obedience to your parents. It's probably the best way of uniting your obedience with our Lord's obedience and humility at the Mass. Before daily missiles became popular and so easily available, how in the world did the faithful attend Mass with devotion? They're only about 200 years old. Maybe three, I'm not sure. Relatively recent. And these people did this by interiorly uniting their hearts with our Lord's sacrifice. In all simplicity, they offered themselves to God as an oblation and a sacrifice protesting that they wanted to abandon themselves to God. They're ready and willing to suffer all that he wants them to suffer, all the trials of everyday life. And this way, they not only prayed the Mass, but they lived the Mass. Just for the record, I'm not poo-pooing the missal, but not to be straitjacketed in either. It's a means to an end. I was asked once, what is the best way of attending Mass? And I thought... What's the simplest way I could answer? And it came to me. I said, attend Mass as though you were actually at Calvary. Pretty simple. What would your interior be like if you saw Jesus hanging on the cross in front of you right now? Bleeding and barely able to breathe, looking at you with those divine eyes, silently pleading with you to love him, to not sin anymore, to comfort him by your love. And obedience. What method would you need to keep attentive to him, to love him? If you were at Calvary, you probably wouldn't whip out a long speech prepared by someone else. Be he a saint or whatever. You don't do that to your spouse. I love you very much. Uh, and you go down the line. It would come straight from your heart straight to the sacred heart. And that is how you attend Mass, how you would attend Calvary. That is how you prepare for Holy Communion. So I will close with the words of Bishop Fulton Sheen addressed to our Divine Lord. Quote, I give myself to God. Here is my body. Take it. Here is my blood. Take it. Here is my soul, my will, my energy, my strength, my property, my wealth, all that I have, it is yours. Take it, consecrate it, offer it. Offer it with thyself to the Heavenly Father in order that he, looking down on this great sacrifice, may see only thee, his beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased. Transmute the poor bread of my life into thy divine life. Thrill the wine of my wasted life into thy divine spirit. Unite, unite my broken heart with thy heart. Change my cross into a crucifix. Let not my abandonment and my sorrow and my bereavement go to waste. Gather up the fragments. And as the drop of water is absorbed by the wine at the offertory of the Mass, let my little cross be entwined with thy great cross, so that I may purchase the joys of everlasting happiness and union with thee. Consecrate these trials of my life, which would go unrewarded unless united with thee. Transubstantiate me so that like bread, which is not like thy body, 
and wine which is now thy which is now thy body, and wine which is now thy blood, I too may be wholly thine. I care not if the species remain, or that like the bread and the wine I seem to all earthly eyes the same as before. My station in life, my routine, duties, my work, my family, all these are the species of my life, which may remain unchanged, but the substance of my life, my soul, my mind, my will, my heart, transubstantiate them, transform them wholly into thy service, so that through me all may know how sweet is the love of Christ. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Amen.